Hello, you're listening to the New York Public Library podcast, exploring great books and big ideas. My name is Aiden Flax-Clark. I help put together some of the library's free cultural programs throughout the year and share them with you on the show. Today's episode, Nigerian writer Ayobami Adebayo. Her debut novel, Stay With Me, was just published in the United States last week. And it was so good that even though she wasn't in New York to talk about it at the library, we had to have her on the show. I've been telling anyone who will listen, which now fortunately includes you, that they should read this book. And the sort of obvious first question when you tell someone to read a book is, well, what's it about? And that's kind of the problem because I don't really want to tell anyone anything about this book because the best part of reading it is finding out what happens. It's tricky. I talk about it with Ayobami a little bit in our interview, so you'll hear how she handles it. I guess what I'll tell you is sort of a version of what's on the flap. There's a young couple, Yejide and Akin, they're four years married, and they're having trouble having a baby. They've tried everything. They've seen doctors. They've been to healers. She's tried teas, other crazy cures. Nothing has worked. But they've also long agreed that they would not have a polygamous relationship, which in the 1980s and 90s had not totally disappeared from Nigerian culture. It has a long tradition there. And as Ayobami explained to me when we talked, isn't really fashionable, but isn't also completely gone from Nigerian culture now. And then one day, seemingly out of nowhere, Aiken's family shows up on their doorstep with a second wife for Aiken. And Yejide knew nothing about it. And then what she realizes is that she has to get pregnant, no matter what, no matter how. And that is actually when things get super crazy and in ways that you definitely will not expect. It's a gripping and at times shocking book that I found impossible to put down. After it was published in Britain, Stay With Me was shortlisted for the Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction, one of the world's more prestigious literary awards, which until recently was known as the Orange Prize. Here in the States, Michiko Kakutani wrote her last review in the New York Times before stepping down as its chief book critic on Stay With Me. Kakutani called Adubayo an exceptional storyteller and the novel a powerfully magnetic and heartbreaking book. Because I like the book so much, I was really looking forward to talking with Ayobami, and the conversation did nothing to disappoint. She's a delight to speak with. Since she wasn't in the States, she spoke with me over the phone from her home in Lagos. And after you listen, seriously, go check out Stay With Me. I don't think you'll regret it. Right before we get to the conversation, let me remind you that if you enjoy this episode and haven't subscribed to the New York Public Library podcast yet, we'd love it if you went to Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen and subscribe now. But if you already are a subscriber, there's more you can do. You can share the show with anyone you think might like it. Or why not leave us a review, especially a good one. And with that, let's get to it. Here's my conversation with Ayobami Adebayo speaking with me over the phone from Lagos. One of the difficulties I had preparing for this was that, you know, I have a million questions about this book, but most of them would be spoilers for people who haven't read it. So I'm going to do my best not to ask those. But in preparing and, and having that difficulty, it made me wonder how you tell people about this book, how you describe it, because um, so much of the joy in reading it is what unfolds. Yes, it's a difficult book to really talk about without giving away spoilers. Because I think that in the first half of the book, you think about it's about one thing, and then it changes. And I remember when I had to write a query letter, you know, to get an agent, it was so difficult to write about this book. And perhaps also because I wasn't very good at talking about what I'm writing. So I would tell people, well, it's about a man and a woman. <laughs> that, that is the best I could do. They're like, oh, uh, sounds great. Say, <laughs> yes, you know, that's really original. <laughs> like, 
you know, or I would say, oh, it's about marriage. Oh, sometimes when I was really tired, I would just say, it's about people. <laughs> so, um, but I'll try to do better right now. So I, I, I'm thinking more and more of it as a, a it's about many things, but one of the things it is is it's that it's also a conversation between two people looking back on a marriage that failed their marriage and either trying to understand what happened or to justify some of the choices that they made in that marriage to themselves and in their heads to the other person. And then at the end of it all, when everything comes together, both of them I, in the light of that past, trying to reimagine a future, what might be possible in their future, um, individually and together. So um, I'm not sure if that says anything at all, <laughs> but that's what I've got right now. But it's also a book about a woman who wants desperately to have a child. She's grown up without a mother. And that gap, she felt very keenly because she was in a polygamous family. And in a polygamous family, your mother is extremely important because she's the one who fights for you, who defends you. And when the mother is not there for any reason, that loss is felt very keenly. So she's come out of that and she's come into this marriage. And finally, she thinks that she has a person who will always be in our corner and now she wants to have children and she's not able to and um, things just go south from there. It's a book about motherhood, about marriage, about love and also about loneliness. Yeah, I read somewhere that you had read a line somewhere that said something like the only thing worse than being a motherless child was being a childless mother. Am I remembering that right? Yes, that's a quotation from a short story by Taya Selassie, The Sex Lives of African Girl. And yes, I mean, I, I, I read it while I was working on this book, and it was just so perfect in, in describing what Yejide's character was all about. And d- did I read correctly that you started writing this book on your phone while you were working at a bank? Yeah, um, I was working in a bank, and I was living in Lagos, and... Lagos is wonderful, but it's also a very crazy city. The traffic is is just insane. And so at that time, my day would start around uh, 5 a.m. By 5.30 a.m., I will be on the bus to get to work. And I'll leave the office 6.30, be on the bus again to get back home. And sometimes, I mean, usually I'll get home around 10 p.m. So I'm in traffic for about four hours. And I remember one day I got home at 8 p.m. and I was so excited and happy. I didn't know what to do with the time. Yeah. I felt like everybody in Lagos just disappeared that day and somehow we got home at 8. So, but I was fortunate in that the bank had a staff bus, so I didn't have to worry about driving and it was in public transportation. So I could sit in the phone. And I remember I started writing the book and one of those horrendous traffic situations. I think we'd been on a spot for about two hours. And I remember being very terrified because I knew I did not want to continue working in a bank. And as I was sitting there, I kept thinking, I'm never going to write again because I'm going to spend my whole life in traffic. (laughs) And I will never have time to write. 
I was really scared. And I thought, oh my God, I can't let this happen to me. So I took out my phone. It was not your phone then. It wasn't even really very smart. And I just started typing. And I, I was looking over the water. And I remember I was thinking about the water and the way it looks that night. And I just started writing. And so I would write paragraphs, you know. And during the weekend, I would just put them on my computer. And that's how I started. Because I was just so afraid that that job was going to be the end of me. Wow. And this it was first published quite a few years ago. Is that right? In 2013? No, actually. Um, that was, uh, it was shortlisted for a prize in 2013. Um, it was an early draft of the manuscript. Ah. So, yeah, so that, that, that happened. And then it was published in March of this year in the UK and then in April in Nigeria. But an early draft of the manuscript was shortlisted for an Africa-wide prize uh, called the Kwani Manuscript Prize in 2013. There was a bit of publicity around that. Okay, because when I read that, I was like, God, she must be sick of talking about this book. And then I started to feel guilty. (laughs) No, not not, not yet. (laughs) I mean, that's good because it's getting crazy amounts of attention. what, What has that been like for you? Learning to get used to it. I think, I mean, at first it was a bit overwhelming, and I think it still is, to be quite honest, because I am not, um, <laughs> I am not, I really don't, I mean, I think personally, I'm not, I really don't like attention that much. <laughs> but then why did I write a book, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's a fair question. <laughs> yeah. So, um, it's been wonderful. I nobody could nobody could. I, I don't think anybody thinks they're going to write their first book and it's going to do this well. It's it's just astonishing every time. Well, it's certainly well deserved. Um, like I said, it's really a. I I couldn't put it down. Um, and I'm basically trying to force everyone in my family to read it. Thank you. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about polygamy, which you mentioned earlier, and of course is a pretty significant factor in the narrative. Um, what is the current state of polygamy practices in Nigeria? I mean, I know it's not it's not technically legal in the country, but there are parts certain states that kind of allow it. Is is that right? I think I think all the states allow it, you uh. know, because it was widely practiced ages ago. But under customary law, it's legal. So we have all kinds of laws in Nigeria. It's a bit complicated. But under customary law, under Sharia law, it's legal. And those are also laws that govern sections of the country. So what has happened is that it's no longer as fashionable as it used to be, at least among younger people. And I think even in my mother's generation, my parents, I can't really think of any of their friends who's educated that has more than one wife. But in my grandparents' generation, it was the norm. You know, my maternal grandfather had just one wife, and that was exceptional. Everybody else that I knew of his generation had two, three, four, five wives, including my grandfather on my father's side. But one thing that has carried over is that... Even though people are not, I mean, men are not polygamous in the technical sense anymore, I think that because of that heritage, 
for many Nigerian men and for many Niger, even Nigerian women, this idea that the idea that a man is unfaithful is then <laughs> it's it, it's complicated because it's almost as if a man simply can't be unfaithful, you know, because if so, so if a man cheats on his wife and she's complaining, well, people might sympathize with her for a couple of days, and then on the third day they tell her, well, he didn't marry another wife, you know. I think there's that that possibility sort of always hangs over many marriages, even when there's no technical second wife. But monogamy is required of women. I mean, in the real sense of it, you're you're not expected to cheat at all, but it's not required of men, even in um, sort of what we call court marriages, which are the ones that say, oh, it's one man and one wife. Even then, you really know that the society doesn't expect or require a man to stay faithful to those vows. Well, that sounds uh, very convenient for them. Incredibly. Incredibly convenient. So what made you think, given that you didn't know anyone, you know, around your age that was practicing polygamy, what made you think to have it as part of this book? I think um, I didn't know anyone of my own age. Um, And I, I don't think any of my friends had gotten married by the time I started writing this book. But I think also that, of course, I'd observed it in some of my older uncles. I'd seen things play out in their families, and I'd seen how much damage that kind of situation can do to everybody in the family, including the children, especially the children, from my experience. And um, I also like to write about things I don't know about, because then it makes it a process of discovery. You know, I get to imagine being another person that I couldn't, just couldn't possibly be. That, I think, is one of the very interesting parts of the process for me. The sort of being in the life of another person for over several years, trying to imagine how a person can come to make decisions that I could never agree with or that I couldn't imagine myself making. So I think that that probably came out of an abiding curiosity about the lives of other people, you know, and uh, sort of an obsession with how do other people live, why do other people behave the way they do, just as a curiosity about the human mind and um, the way it manifests itself in the actions and the choices that people take. So that was, and of course, I think a part of it was also a desire to question this thing by sort of holding up a mirror and say, I mean, look at what this does. Is this really worth it? You know, I think that um, all of that sort of came together to inspire this. Uh, And you mentioned earlier that this book in a lot of ways is about loneliness. And I wondered if you can unpack um, what preoccupies you about loneliness. Ah, I think, I mean, I, now technically in this part of the world, I mean, most people have siblings within the first year or the second year. And I mean, I think my sister wasn't born until 
about five years after I was born. And in this part of the world, it's a bit unusual. Even now, when I still tell people, they're like, what what happened <laughs> to your parents? <laughs> Why did you have children? So I think even as a child, I was very aware of sort of being a bit alone. I mean, not I was, I mean, my parents were there and all of that, but most of my friends had siblings already. And most of my cousins had siblings and many of them would come to play. And you know, the way children can be sometimes. And we would have a quarrel and then they would ignore me and play with their own siblings. And I remember <laughs> wishing that I had somebody that, you know, I could ignore someone else and play with. You know. <laughs> so I was interested. So I think I became interested early on in that um, need that we have sometimes, and I think most times, to just connect with another human being to feel that we have someone who is a partner in life, I mean, not necessarily even a romantic partner, but just a friend, a, a, a sister, somebody who's with you. And with Yejide's character in particular, she is so alone. And um, I think that even because of the situation she's in, she grows up without a mother, she doesn't have any siblings. And even in the Yoruba culture, people, I mean, you listen to some of the proverbs and you understand that. And I think this came out of the fact that, I mean, there were so many polygamous relationships that you, there, there's this idea that your mother's family, not even just your mother alone, that your mother's family will be the most supportive throughout the journey of your life. So it's something that's very important. And then she grew up without all of that. And she just has this desire to connect with another person. And while I, it's a valid desire, and I think that even for hacking her husband, you know, I mean, he grows up in the midst of his family, but then thinks about himself, but he, he can't just share with anybody and only brings himself to talk to his brother about. And um, while it's, it's a legitimate desire, I'm always, I mean, and I think I'm still interested and fascinated by the fact that many times, I mean, we, we really are all alone. It's very, it's a bit, it's a bit um, depressing, but I'm struck often by how, I mean, we come alone. You know, I mean, there's a saying in Yoruba like that, that you come into this world alone and you're going to leave alone. Even if you're a twin, you come one after the other most of the time. So it's such a part of the human condition that we're constantly trying to sort of negate it. And I think it's something that I continue to think about as uh, interested in how we come to accept it, you know, the events in our lives the situations that compel us to accept that this is an aspect of being human. It, it might not always be that way, but it's an aspect that at one point or the other, we will have to acknowledge and live with. I always think it's interesting that when we're alone, I shouldn't say we, I mean, I, I have this experience, but I suspect I'm not alone that, you know, when I'm alone, it's when I feel both the most liberated and probably also the most desperate. Yes, it's, Yes, I, I agree, you know, and I think that, um, <laughs> so I'm a bit of a recluse, so that this might come from that. I think that there's a lot of freedom to be found in that, you know, in just 
making peace with that sometimes and saying, you know, this is okay for now or for as long as it needs to be. And um, accepting yourself and moving forward into relationships or interactions from there. Because I think that being lonely could be so overwhelming sometimes that you would just might just take anything that's available in terms of a friend who talks down to you or even a family member you shouldn't really be talking to for certain reasons, but because you're so desperate to have human connection as wonderful and as important as that is that sometimes you make yourself vulnerable as um, some of the characters in this novel do. Um, You were quoting a couple of Yoruba proverbs just a second ago, and and one of the things I wanted to ask you about was, um, are there any ways in which um, Yoruba language or culture might shape the narrative in a way that a non, you know, Yoruba or non-Nigerian person wouldn't recognize? Yeah, I think so, actually. I think, I mean, it's, it, uh, you know, I was talking with someone a while ago and I was talking about the fact that I always feel that I need a specific inroad to anything I want to talk about. You know, so I want to talk about motherhood or I want to write about motherhood. Um, even if I have the general ideas about what I want to say about it, I'm always waiting for that specific inroad, usually a character who's in a specific place. And I think that Yoruba culture and the language even are very important in that process for me because I've said so much off of it. You know, um, and it's it's got a very rich literary heritage that I take advantage of all the time. So I think that that shaped this novel in many ways in that it's a story that I think could, I mean, many of the things that happen to this couple can happen to people all over the world. And it's universal in that sense. But the particulars of it, the specifics, the details, could only happen in a certain city in southwest Nigeria at a particular time. And um, the other thing was that with the language, particularly the dialogue, I wanted to um, reproduce the dialogue in a way that stayed close to the Yoruba language, not just in terms of uh, meaning, but also in terms of the syntax and the sentence structure, you know and uh, all of that. So definitely that shapes the book. There's perhaps some layer of meaning that might become immediately available to someone who's familiar with Yoruba culture, you know, which only unfolds over the course of the novel to someone who might not be familiar with the culture. So you actually mentioned something else I wanted to ask you about, which is motherhood, which is, of course, you know, a fundamental issue in this book. And, and you know, I'm gathering that there's sort of a received wisdom about women needing to be mothers. Uh, I mean, is that is that fair that that's a sort of that's what's expected of, of women that, you know, you're not whole until you're a mother? Yes. Um, I mean, it's, it's expected of women. And I think it's, it's expected of everybody, actually, that you know, whole until you become a parent, you know, whole until you reproduce. Uh. But I think it's more complicated for women because for some reason, <laughs> when
when a couple doesn't have children, that the woman must be the one the problem. So usually she's the one who faces a lot of pressure in that situation. And um, it's also always, I mean, because of the polygamous situation, the man could marry three wives and then have children with those wives. So it's, it's a belief that's widely held. And I can think of several problems. <laughs> Um, with that idea, the idea that you're not whole until you have children. So what is interesting to me also is that the aspects of culture that people choose to privilege, the aspects, I mean, I talk about proverbs and they're seen as, you know, condensed forms of wisdom such that when people are giving you counsel, when a healthy person is talking to you, they'll refer to proverbs sort of to buttress their points you know, to prove that they're right. And one um, very common proverb, which I think shows up in the book, is that someone who doesn't have a child is like a snake that passes on top of a rock without leaving any marks, you know, on ground. And, I mean, another one is one that goes like, um, the person who's buried by their child is the one who has had a child. And it goes around the culture of, I mean, the way a person is buried and how their children are such integral parts of it. Their children, the people that children have married are such an important part of the culture around burials and uh, laying people to rest. But there's another proverb that says that the person who has a child will be buried by children and the person who doesn't have a child will be buried by children. You know, so there's also that aspect that sort of balances it out that says that you know at the end of the day we're all going to end up in the same place and I mean that's it that's that's the end of the journey for everybody whether you have children or you don't have children yeah but it's interesting that over time that you don't hear people say that often when a couple has problem with infertility you don't hear people tell them that to sort of comfort them, because I think that what that says is that having children doesn't make you better than anybody else. Not having children doesn't make you less of a person. Yeah. It's interesting to me that it's the proverbs that insist that reproducing is what validates your humanity. They're the ones that people reach for, and I'm, I'm very interested in why that is and how we've come to that point. Do you remember when that started seeming problematic to you? Ah, <laughs> um, I think it was probably pretty early because I would hear stories of people who, I mean, there was one story, and I, I think this was probably the point when it started feeling very problematic to me. It was a story of a man who had been married for several years. I think I heard this maybe when I was 18 or 19, and because big scandal then and he was, he was a vicar and he'd been married for I think about 18 years and he didn't have any children and his wife didn't have any children and they were in the church one day and his sister comes to the vicarage which is next to the church and just packs everything the wife owns in that house and throws everything into the streets and I think that was sort of the end of that, that marriage you know, and I just really started thinking about how terrible it was that this was something that 
could still be done to somebody who has been building a life with a husband for over a decade and you think that just because there's no child in this relationship, you have a right to do something like this to this person. And I think that story, I don't know for whatever reason, I just was very upset when I heard about it. And um, was hoping, of course, that that kind of behavior would stop. And that... Um, we will really have a rethink about this because the fact is that people will never be able to have biological children. And it doesn't mean they're less human. It doesn't mean that their lives can't be happy or productive. Yeah. There's also the reality that the Earth would probably like us, you know, as a species to have slightly fewer children than we are having, you know. You know, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yes. So there's one... You know, I'm doing my best not to get into too many specifics about the book, but there's one specific episode I did want to ask about, which is um, there's a scene where Yejide journeys up to this mountain of jaw-dropping miracles in an attempt to fix her fertility. And, I, you know, it's it's a pretty crazy scene, and I encourage everyone to read it. But I was curious if that's based on something or if it's a complete invention. It's a little bit of both, you know. And... um it's interesting. I mean, the thing comes up a lot. And I, I remember that I think it was there right from the very first draft. And with each draft, I would look at it because it's such a desperate sin. You know, I would sort of cringe every time I edited it. But I also felt that it was necessary because, I mean, I don't want to sound so grandiose about this, but I also felt about this book, particularly Yejide's aspect of the story, but it was a form of bearing witness to what a lot of women are put through psychologically. So, I mean, there are all these kind of centers, you know, places on top of a mountain that people go to pray and all of that. And um, really strange things happen there. So I hadn't, nobody had told me that specific story before, but I'd had some pretty crazy ones. And um, that just seemed to come with the story. You know, it was it was one thing that just came, that particular thing. And I decided to keep it in there because I felt that it, it just sort of reflected how so much pressure can be put on a person that they start to lose their mind at a point, I think. Yeah, I mean, it seems like one of those uh, commonalities you know, different manifestations, but in lots of parts of the world, is that there's strange industries devoted to capitalizing on desperate people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you you just you put it right. That's exactly. I was interested that fathers are by and large very absent in this book. Yejide's is already dead, and and Akin's father. You know, his only role in the book is to die to bring some people together. Um, <laughs> And uh, which, you know, it's an important job, but um, I just wondered if that was, if that was deliberate, something you thought about, or just kind of grew out of the other circumstances of the book? No, it wasn't deliberate at all. Um, but I think that, uh, I mean, my understanding of it, I don't think the men would agree, but I think that if you observe many polygamous families, after a while, the men become... Well, not very necessary. <laughs> 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 we will pray. 
And I think after all the lives I've had children and the children are growing up, it just sometimes, it just seems to happen. And I've seen it happen over and over again that the, the power dynamic tends to shift as the men grow older. And I think one of the reasons is because the children are forced to develop an even more intimate relationship with their mother because it's a competitive environment and you are aware very early on that your father has other interests at heart. You know, he had other wives and children from other wives that matter more to him. So, I mean, at the point there was this culture of Yoruba men having wives even in different cities. So sometimes it meant that you managed to see your father for months, you know, and your mother was the person that was always a part of your life. So I think that sometimes what happens when children are then grown and are not dependent on their parents anymore, it's that the mother is the only person that they really actually have a relationship with. She's the only person that they can have a conversation with. And the fathers tend to sort of fade from their lives and um, in many cases become quite lonely and sometimes die alone because, well, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Coming back to loneliness. Yes. (laughs) I think because... I think that by that time, I mean, this is usually by the time they've been married to all the wives for about 50 years, that they've sort of alienated the affection of each and every one of those women. And um, I think that the women at the point just realize, I don't really need you anymore. <laughs> right. And the only other very specific thing I was curious about is that, um, and I feel comfortable mentioning it because it's not really a spoiler, but in the middle of the book, there's sort of a bit of a section where people are having their houses robbed and they're receiving ransom notes, essentially, you know, a few months in advance. And I wanted to just know about that. I'm assuming that's that happened in in history. Yes, that did. That did happen in the 80s. I mean, I wasn't born at that time, so (laughs) I had stories. And uh, it was, I think it was still happening in the 90s when I was a young child. That culture sort of started at, at, around that time in the 1980s when there was this serious economic recession in Nigeria and we had a military government and there was so much insecurity. I think that Nigeria changed in so many ways at that time. And one of the things that happened was that hand robberies became very, very common such that even if you look at buildings, like if I go to my grandparents, who don't have burglar proofs. That's one of the things that is just normal now for you to think about, that the houses that were built in the 50s and the 40s didn't have those kind of features. They didn't have all these fences that were so high that you couldn't see what was inside from the outside. So that did happen. People would get letters from um, hand rubbers informing them that we're coming on this particular day and just make sure you don't go anywhere or you will suffer for it. And there were, I think there was at least one story that I heard of a man who then left on that day and left his family at home, he sort of faced the hand rubbers. And um, they came back when he returned home and um, hurt him. So it was a very terrifying period for many people. That had never happened before, and it was starting to become the norm. It's it's interesting the way you treat 
contemporaneous events of the time in the book and and politics that it's you know really comes across as a backdrop and you know except for one I guess very pivotal scene toward the end it is just sort of in the atmosphere and yet I don't imagine that you could remove it and have the book feel right yes and I it started out very differently so it started out being very political because I'm interested in politics uh-huh. and um, therefore I wanted to put everything in there and make every point in this book but the more I worked on it, the more I realized that those characters would not be as involved in what was going on as I would have liked them to be. So I then started thinking about what they would notice and um, what would come organically to the novel. And it also became a way to think about how the Nigerian middle class has evolved. And I think beginning from that time, that you were living in a very turbulent period, but you were almost powerless because you couldn't vote. It was a military system. You couldn't vote to change whoever it was that was in power. Um, Many people who spoke out were killed. And um, you were Nigerian and you were living in Nigeria. So I think that what began to happen was that people began to sort of become mini-governments onto themselves, that people who could afford it would then buy a power generator because there was no stable electricity. You would then build higher fences. You would then pay for security guards uh, because nobody was going to take that seriously and there was really nothing much you could do. And I think that it's an attitude that has carried over even to these democratic times. And so the book became a way of uh, sort of looking at that. And the moment you mentioned at the end, that pivot hole moment, was also looking at how it's really impossible to insulate yourself when you are in a place that has all those problems. You might be able to escape for a while, but I think that eventually, most of the time, a moment comes when you're forced to realize that the system is not what it should be. I know that you studied at different points with Chimamanda Adichie and Margaret Atwood, at least for brief periods. And I was just curious uh, from them if there were any singular lessons that you walked away from those experiences with that you hold on to still in your writing? Yes, definitely. Um, the workshop uh, with Chimamanda Adichie was in Lagos. I think it was 19 at the time. And it was the very first time I would be in the same room with real writers. And at the end of those 10 days, one very important thing that I learned was that I could revise what I had written. You know, for some reason, it just had never occurred to me that I could just hold on to something and keep working on it until I was absolutely satisfied. And that it was an essential part of writing. I think that before then, I used to think that everything I read was just, you know, the first draft that people just started writing and everything was so wonderful and brilliant and all the <laughs> sentences were perfect, <laughs> you know. I, I really believe that up to that point. And I think that every time I wrote something and I obviously realized that, oh, this is not working, I would feel that maybe it means that I can't do this at all. 
And that was very important because rewriting and revising and sort of self-editing over and over again has become such an important part of my process. And that, that was sort of the point when I realized I could just keep going at this thing until I'm satisfied. And there's um, a story I tell my friends about the first time uh, Margaret Hatwood came to class while I was in England. And I mean, I'd read a book since I was a teenager, so it was uh, a bit overwhelming to sort of be in her presence. And then she comes into class, and we were working on first chapters, and she had told every one of us to bring a book that we really liked, and we thought that the first chapter was quite good. And so she goes around the room, and to give you a sense of the class, this was a very international course. I was from Nigeria, there were people from Singapore, from South Africa, from the Philippines, from different parts of the world, from America, from the UK. And she would talk to each person. And so I picked um, and patched Bel Canto, and we went around the room like that. And in a class of, I think, about 15 of us, she had read 14 of the 15 novels, wow. and the 15th one that she hadn't read, she had read something else by the author, and the book had just come out. And this was a totally random selection from people. I mean, and people brought books from all kinds of places. There were authors I'd never even heard of that people brought their books. And it was just so striking for me, you know, how obviously well-read she was. I mean, I knew that, of course, that she would be well-read, but that was just on a totally different plane. And um, what was really impressed on me was how necessary reading is to writing. It was something that I'd always done, but I think that, that someone who's just excellent and prolific and consistently excellent in a hard work Maybe this is one thing I could also do, and it was it was it wasn't very attainable, but it was something that I could attempt. You know, I could attempt to read more, and I think sometimes you're worried that whatever it is that helps people to be brilliant at what they do at writing, you may not be able to do it. But this was something I could attempt. I don't know if I would ever read that much, but yeah, that. Well, that's how's it going so far? Well. <laughs> Well, I think I'm doing okay. I mean, I, you know, there's, there's always a very big pile of books that's judging you, you know, that yeah. books you had. <laughs> wow. I have those both at home and at work, so I, I, I can relate. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I've, I, and I always loved reading, but I think that after that, Apart from enjoying it, I think I've sort of taken it up also as a discipline as um, it's very important way of making sure that I develop my craft, you know. And so, and going back to the um, lesson about revision, are you a pretty furious rewriter now? Yes, I am. I am. <laughs> um, I often think that I actually start writing when I start editing. I mean, I just go, you know, I just set it halfway and just write everything, knowing that half of it will go. Um, I I don't feel confident to say that I'm working on anything until I'm on the second or third draft. There's um, Naboka 
has a quote about that that I like. I'm I'm probably going to get it wrong, but he said something like, every word I've ever published has been rewritten at least once, if not a few times. And then he said something like, um, oh, my pencils outlast my erasers, is what he said. Yes, I, I mean, I, I absolutely agree with that. And yes, I mean, it's just become such an important part of my process that I... <laughs> the thing now is to figure out when I'm sort of overdoing it. So the only other thing I was just curious about was um, the magazine that you're an editor about at. Um, can you tell me a little bit about it? Yes. So um, I work as a fiction editor for Saraba magazine. And it's a magazine that started in Nigeria a number of years ago in 2009, if I remember correctly, by a couple of young Nigerian writers, um, Tamina Jayani Man and Zuma. We were at the university together and I started working with the magazine right from the beginning. And what we do is publish writing by Africans on the continent and uh, in diaspora. So we're interested in short stories, nonfiction, and poetry by imagine writers, uh, imagine African writers. Uh, what we wanted to do and still want to do is provide a space where those voices can be amplified as much as we can do. Is all the writing in English? Yes. Um, so we publish regular issues, and then we have some special issues. So all the issues we've published have been in English, except for one, which was um, in different languages. And then we also had this languages translated into English. But that was a one-off uh, project. Huh. That sounds very cool. I, I had not heard of it before. We used to be an online magazine, but we're launching our first print issue in October. Well, this was great. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk. Oh, thank you very much. Um, It's been lovely chatting with you. All right, that was, again, Ayobami Adebayo speaking with me over the phone from Lagos about her debut novel, Stay With Me. And seriously, I really can't recommend this book more. As always, thanks for listening to the show. If you're enjoying it, we'd appreciate any feedback you can leave about it in Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen. Next week, Raul Peck, live at the Schomburg Center, speaking with Paul Holdengraber and Schomburg director Kevin Young.